God. Uh, we are in the book of Hebrews, and we're in chapter 9. And you know uh, a lot about the book of Hebrews by now, if you've been here very many Sundays. We really don't know who wrote the book, and we don't know who it's written to, but we know why it was written. It was written to encourage people not to fall away from the church. And what was happening, persecution was breaking out in the empire, and people had their uh, possessions uh, seized, they had friends put in prison, they were being persecuted, and it was easier to leave the church and go back to Judaism. And what the writer of Hebrews does is you can't go back, but if you go back, you're leaving Jesus. So he warns him in different ways, not to drift away kind of casually, not to harden your hearts over time by ignoring the Word of God. And then he tells them not to fall away deliberately. And so this morning we read a portion of Hebrews chapter 9, and you're going to notice that this portion talks about a covenant and a will, and I'll say this again in the sermon, they're really the same Greek word, a diatheke, a covenant and will. And the only thing that makes the decision about how to translate it is the context. And the context you see demands that sometimes you translate it as a will. So let's read God's word, and I'm, I'm going to let you know when I change gears. Starting in verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant, in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living, and then go to verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ has been sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sins, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is God's word to God's people. Let us pray. Father, give us eyes that we may see, give us ears that we may hear the gospel, and give us hearts that love you, give us wills that want to serve you, and use this preaching event for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you know anything about the covenanters, you will know how awful that time was. In Scotland, in the 1600s, about 1638, a group of Presbyterians signed what is called the Solemn League and Covenant. They had a disagreement with the king, who thought he was king and head of the church. And the covenanters not only wanted to, wanted to worship in Presbyterian fashion and have a Presbyterian form of government, uh, 
They believed that only Christ was king and head of the church. And the king at that time thought he was head of the church and called the shots. And so when the covenanters disagreed with that, they became public enemy number one. They were hunted down like animals. And during the killing years, the covenanters, 17,000 of them lost their life in 38 years because they wanted to worship like we worship today. There was a young lady one Sunday afternoon going to a covenanters communion service. You could say that's a Presbyterian communion, communion service. And she was met and resisted by the king's uh, army. And they asked her where she was going on this Sabbath day afternoon. And here's what she said. It's very creative. My elder brother has died, and they're going to read his will this afternoon. And he has done something for me and has left something for me. And I want to hear, him read, I want to hear them read his will. And she wasn't lying. Her elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, had died and in her place. And in order to secure her salvation, and at the communion service, his last will and testament would be read, and she would be told of what he had done for her and the benefits his death accrued for her. That's the idea of this whole passage. To understand by reading God's word what the death of the Lord Jesus Christ has left for us as an inheritance. When we talk about reading the Bible, it's no accident we divide it up into the Old Testament, Old Will and the Testament, and Will and Testament of somebody, and the New Testament. And so when we read the Bible, we're actually reading the Will, the Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ, and what He has given His people. There are lots in this passage, but I want us to focus on just three simple things. I want us to focus on the mediator, who is Jesus Christ the inheritance that Christ gives his people, and the salvation that comes when he returns. What is a mediator? A mediator is somebody who tries to reconcile two opposing sides. You've done that. You've tried to mediate your friends. You know, this friend's mad at this friend, and you try to get between them and say, would you listen to each other, and let's kind of come to some common sense and common consensus. When the Bible calls Jesus our mediator, what, he's, what the Bible is saying is there is a, a breach between God and mankind. And God is full of wrath because of his justice at man's sin. And those two, those two parties, God and man, have to be reconciled, and they need a mediator. And the only mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Timothy said there is one God, and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Uh, the writer to Hebrews makes this point over and over again. In Hebrews 9, he says Christ is a mediator. In Hebrews 12, 24, he says Christ is a mediator. In Hebrews 8, 6, he says Christ is the mediator. Well, whose mediator is he? That's a big question. Is Christ your mediator? It says in verse 15 that those who have been called to them, Christ is his mediator. The idea of calling in the Bible, you know, is twofold. We have an outward call and we have an inward call. And the outward call is anytime the gospel is preached. When I say to you, 
God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should have everlasting life. That's an outer call. But an inner call is when God takes that outer call and He drives it into your heart and changes your life and gives you repentance for your sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a calling. And so it says that Jesus is the mediator to those who have been called, to those who have faith and repentance, to believers, to God's people. This is comforting to you. And then you say, where is all of this happening? Where is this mediation going on between God and man? And it says that Jesus is mediating in, in heaven. And if we had read the whole chapter, you would have noticed that what he was referring to or comparing to is the high priest of Israel uh, every year would go into the tabernacle uh, that Moses made out in the wilderness. And every year he'd go into the Holy of Holies and he'd make atonement for the sin of his people by pouring uh, the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And he says he does it every year. But Jesus doesn't enter the Holy of Holies. He has entered heaven, the holiest of holies. He has entered the very presence of God. And the reason he's there, and this is mind-boggling, the reason he's there is he appears for us. Did you see that in verse 24? He appears for us. Let that sink in. Jesus is your mediator, praying that you and God would be reconciled. The other word for mediator in the Bible is used as an advocate. An advocate is this. In 1 John, it says, If anybody sins, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate. John Hodge says this about an advocate. The relationship of Christ to his people is that of a legal advocate to a client. The former impersonates the latter. The lawyer stands in his client's place. It is, while it lasts, the most intimate of relationships. You may not even have to appear in court. You are not heard. You are not regarded. You are lost in your advocate, who for the time being is your representative. The advocate, not you, is seen and heard. The advocate is, you, is not you. The advocate, not you, is regarded by the judge. Here's what another guy says about the advocate, the mediator. An advocate is someone who has official relationship with you so that the advocate achieves whatever the advocate achieves, you achieve. And whatever the advocate loses, you lose. Let me make it a little even more simple than that. Most of you probably don't do your own taxes, right? Maybe you do. And if you do, God bless you. But anyway... Uh, you know, the you had to sign this form when you turn in your taxes. Can your accountant talk to the IRS for you? And I put on there, heavens yes. You know, I don't want to talk to the IRS. Please don't let me talk to the IRS. And so Gary Gaines Belletti has the uh, ability to speak for me before the IRS and represent my case. And what he negotiates is what I get. I've only been sued one time. My family was sued over some adverse possession of land several years ago. 
And what we tried to do is we tried to get the best lawyer available because we knew that we stood or fall, we stood or fell on what that advocate did before the judge. Now, when you think about that, uh, Tim Keller has this great idea. So when I first thought of that, I thought of, okay, Jesus is my advocate. And he's in heaven, and he said, his name is Tim, too, Tim Keller. He said, okay, the advocate said, okay, Tim has done it again. God, please be patient with Tim. You know, don't wipe Tim out. And then the next day, it's, okay, God, he did it again. Would you be patient and not say, okay, I'm done with him? And then the next day, he stands up and says, okay, God, I know I've been here time and time again, but Tim keeps, you know, he's a good guy, but he's got this problem. He keeps sinning, you know, please. And he says, that's not what we mean at all. I want to read you what Keller says because I really think it's helpful to understand an advocate. But you see, it doesn't say that the advocate is standing there as Jesus Christ, the merciful, it doesn't say that Jesus Christ is standing there as a persuasive. It says Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And it says that he is saying, you see, a really good lawyer doesn't play the emotion of the court. A good lawyer has a case. And what is Jesus' case? An atoning sacrifice. And therefore, the teaching of this passage, which is so startling and which is so absolutely unparalleled in any other religion, Jesus is not up there standing there asking for forgiveness. No, he's not up there asking for mercy. Absolutely not. What Jesus is doing, he's asking for justice. Jesus Christ stands before the Father, before the justice of God. In other words, and relentlessly, continuously says something like this, Father, yes, Tim did do it again. But I have died the death that he should have died, and I've lived the life that he should have lived. I am his advocate. He is lost in me. And when you look at him, you see me. You have to see all that I've done. You have to see that I am all he is. And therefore, God, it would be unjust for you to make two payments for this sin. I have already paid for it. Therefore, the son is not demanding mercy. He's demanding justice. You see, as an advocate, Jesus is saying, I paid for his sins. I've lived the life that he should have lived. I'm his righteousness. I died the death that he should have died. I'm his propitiation. I'm his substitute. If that doesn't help you, let me tell you an illustration that Wilson used. I've been here 40 years, so let's say 40 plus years ago. He talked about Martin Luther, the great reformer, had these tremendous battles with, with Satan. And at one point, it is legendary, and even you can go and see where the ink is, they say. But in the middle of this confrontation with the devil, uh, the devil was so real to Martin Luther, he threw an inkwell at him. But one night he heard, uh, he had a vision of Satan making accusations towards him. And what Satan was doing was writing what he had done on a chalkboard. You have done this. You have said this. You've left this undone. You treated this person unfairly. And he said, as he saw Satan writing the accusations against him, with this hand he saw a blood-soaked rag wiping it clean. That Jesus had washed him white as snow. That's what the advocate does. When your conscience is bothering you, when you have sinned, what you do is you plead your advocate. 
He has lived and died and rose again for me. Romans 8, 33 says, Who then can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. It's Jesus who died and is raised again. So you have an advocate in heaven named Jesus, and you have an inheritance because he died. It says that uh, in verse 15, I believe it says that again, that you would have an eternal inheritance. Yes, that's in 15, an eternal inheritance. When you have a will, I hope most of you have a will, you adults have a will, and in that will you not only name an executor of the will, you also designate what everybody's going to receive when you die. They're not going to receive it while you're living. Nobody can go to the judge and say, hey, my dad is leaving me some land in Claiborne County, and I want it now. And the judge would say, I think it says, your daddy's will says, when he dies, and he's not dead. A will is not put into practice or not enforced until the testator dies. And you have to prove that he died. Some of you have had to go through this recently. You have lost a loved one. And in order to execute the will and carry on business as usual to claim insurance money, to do bank accounts, social security, you have to prove the death of your loved one. And when people talk to me, I say, always get 10 or 15 death certificates because you're going to have to prove that this person died. That's what this passage is saying, that Jesus has died and risen again, and he's your advocate in heaven, and he has left you riches untold. What riches are though? There's a commentary, there's not a commentary, there's a um, catechism, it's called Brown's Catechism. And in Brown's Catechism it asks this question, what are the legacies left in Jesus' testament? In other words, what, are, what did Jesus leave us in his will? And the answer is, they are all the benefits of the covenant, even himself, and all the things in and with him, included in all things, are pardon, acceptance, redemption, the Holy Spirit to comfort, joy and peace, sanctification, assurance, grace to persevere, and certain hope of eternal life. And he left out one. He left out, to me, the most important one. He left out that you, he has left you an inheritance. You are a son and daughter of the living God. You are co-heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. And because you are now part of the family, you have the privilege of calling Him your Father. You know that He knows how to give good gifts to His children. You understand that the difficulties in your life are not there to punish you, but they're there to discipline and make you mature and make you more like Christ. He gives you hope and guidance and comfort. All sorts of things. All that salvation is, He gives you in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a question that we have been 
dodging since we started this Hebrews series. That the blood of bulls and goats never take away uh, the guilt of sin. And uh, it took the blood of Jesus to take away the blood of, I mean, the guilt of our sin. How in the world did that ever happen? How did the people in the Old Testament receive forgiveness of their sins if Jesus had not died yet? I was reading this week in a commentary which made it really clear, and I think visually it can help you too. You imagine uh, Jesus dying on a hill, and the blood flows down. I hate to be that graphic. And the blood flows to the left and to the right. The blood flows retroactively to those in the Old Testament. It says it forgives those who sinned under the new covenant in verse 15. The blood of Christ cleanses those who sinned in the Old Testament. So how did he do that? The same way the blood that flows on the other side forgives our sin. It's proactive. That we are forgiving by faithfully looking back at the sacrifice of Christ. And they are forgiving us as proactively, reactively looking towards the sacrifice of Christ. So the will that's red, the will that's open, and the will that's it's in force includes all the saints that have ever lived in all time they exercise their faith by bringing those sacrifices to the temple and believing that God would forgive their sins and we are now on the other side and we know the reality of those sacrifices pointed to Christ so we've seen the mediator we've seen the great inheritance and now we see our salvation. It says in verse 28, and did you notice that? In verse 28 it says, So Christ was sacrificed once for all to take away the sins of many, and He will appear a second time not to bear sins, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. Jesus appeared the first time to deal with sin. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. When Jesus was noticed by John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus came the first time, his whole purpose in coming was to bear our sins on the cross and in his body take the punishment of our sins and he did that for his people, those who are called, those who have been repentant of their sin and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the second time he comes, he doesn't come to deal with sins. He comes to bring salvation. How often do you think of the second coming of Christ? You know, maybe we don't think of it because a lot of times it's, too controversial you know when we talk about the second coming of Christ we say are you a, a pre-trib a post-trib or a amil or are you a preterist and those are all different understanding about the return of Christ but in all of those views and as controversial as they might be and debated as they might be they all have one point in common 
that Jesus is coming back to bring salvation to his people. And that Jesus has made it clear that on that day, the dead in Christ will rise and they will be clothed with the, the spirit in heaven, the soul in heaven, and the body of the grave will be united and they will be together with the Lord and they will reign on the new heavens and new earth forever. But the question is, if that is what's going to happen, why aren't we so... Why aren't we more eager about it? Let me see if I can make this make sense what the passage is trying to say. When the high priest in the Old Testament went into the Holy of Holies, he went one time a year, and he took the blood of an animal with him, and when he went in, he had bells on his robe. And the reason he had bells on his robe because they could know that he was still alive. That they were afraid that he would go in there and he hadn't done something right and he would be struck dead. And if he was dead, then God would not have forgiven them for the sins of that year. That, that day of atonement was retroactive like we talked about. It was for the sins that had been committed that whole last year. And when that man, that high priest came out, there was great rejoicing. Not because he wasn't killed, but because God had accepted the sacrifice. And they were forgiven. And they were at one with God. How much more should we wait with eagerness that Jesus Christ will come back? Maybe you're afraid that uh, maybe I'm not right with the Lord. Maybe I'll face a judgment and the judge will cast me away. But if you're a believer, it says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. It's really interesting that when Spurgeon talks about it, he says, you know, think about it like this. Jesus is coming back to deal with sin and to bring salvation to his people. It's kind of like a fire truck. If your house is on fire the greatest thing that you can hear is a fire truck coming because he's your salvation. And Spurgeon said, that's the way it is with Christ. The idea that Christ is coming should exercise in your heart great joy and anticipation because he's coming for you to bring your salvation. So I ask again, how often do you think about the second coming? I'll close with this story. There was a children's home. And it was a children's home for those who were mentally handicapped. Had severe mental problems that uh, their parents couldn't take care of themselves. And one of the things that this Christian home did was they talked a lot about the second coming. Because when Christ came back, everything would be made right. The curse would be lifted. There'd be no more sickness or no more death or no more disability or no more sorrow or pain or any of those things. There'd be a perfect wholeness and everything would be made right. 
And they taught that to the kids that they said, when Jesus comes, everything will be right. But it caused a problem that almost every day a lot of those kids went to the window and put their noses to it and said, is he coming today? And they had to wash the windows every day. Those who know the Lord Jesus Christ eagerly await his coming because then he will make all things right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you have given us a mediator an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is pleading our case, and our case is that you lived and died for us, and we're in you, that we're wrapped up in our mediator and our advocate. Thank you for the rich inheritance that we have, the forgiveness of sin, the peace that passes all understanding, the adoption, uh, the Holy Spirit's ministry in our heart, the Word of God grace that is sufficient, strength that uh, enables us all the things that we inherit, and help us to see the Bible as reading the will, that we have all of this ours because you died, you lived and died for us. And thank you that uh, you're coming again and you're going to fix this broken world. And we don't know the day or the hour, but we're eager for you to come, Lord Jesus, and make all things right, even make us right. And we pray that you'd bless us now as we close.